0: 17. I'm your co-host Corey. I'm here with my co-host Nathan. Good afternoon, Nathan.
1: Good afternoon. Yes, it is afternoon. How are you doing, Corey?
0: I'm great. I'm great. It's uh, yeah, good to be here with, with both you guys. I'll let you take it away from here, Nathan.
1: Today we have a gentleman named Chris with us. How are you doing, Chris?
2: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good today. Yeah, pretty good. Where are you at right now? You're uh, close to me, I think. I'm Vernon BC, Vernon BC, West Coast. Yeah, and um, you've got some interesting kind of background and history that I think will be uh, potentially beneficial to our listeners. So uh, thank you for coming on. We appreciate that, and we will do our best to facilitate those those uh, experiences in the in the best way we can, in the most helpful fashion. Uh, so. I guess uh, we'll start with what you're doing right now. What do you? Uh, what keeps you busy?
2: Taking care of myself, you know, ah. trying to take care of myself uh, at a high level because uh, I ha- I haven't done that in the past and I've paid for it. So the priorities in my life these days are just taking care of myself and my family, and um, you know, trying to do that at a high level. And what that means for me is just. Uh, the, the best I can each day right um, I'm not moving mountains I'm just looking for small victories each day and trying to stay healthy diet exercise and family and then trying to reach outside of that a little bit volunteer within the community um, when I left the military in 2016 I was quite sick so I've just taken a lot of time since then to just center myself and try to work on myself so I can get back to a point where I can give back, which is great because I thank you all for allowing me to do that today. Mm-hmm. I've never done anything like this before, so I'm excited.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh it's our pleasure. Can you give us a, a an idea, a rough idea of what a day looks for like for you as far as your these yeah. things that uh, you're doing to take care of yourself?
2: Sure. So structure is important for me, discipline. It keeps me centered, keeps me on top of my mind, which can get slippery sometimes. Mm-hmm. And get away from me if I allow it. So for me personally, like waking up early in the morning so that I can get up and be productive, you know, like early is relative for people, but for me, you know, six, seven o'clock in the morning, I like to get up and start my day and and just focus my mind with, um, you know, some, I usually wake up, have some coffee and just read some some affirmations, do some journaling about how I'm doing, where I want to go in life, just, uh, you know, positive stuff. I call it programming. I just feel mm. better when my mind is right in the morning. You yeah, know, that makes sense. Um, after that, I'll generally move into some fitness type related stuff, movement. I don't overcomplicate it walking. You know, I just go for a walk in the mornings and take some deep breaths, clear my mind in nature, around people, just somewhere, just to get those. Uh, to build on that momentum that I built started building in the morning. And, and I'll just keep doing that. I, I, I build my week every Sunday. So oh, plan okay. plan for the week. And then I just make sure I can hit that with, with a high degree of accuracy for the week. I build the plan that's going to move me in a positive direction.
1: You know, yeah, I can relate to that. I, I use a daily checklist and it uh, it helps me with structure because I find that quite challenging, especially you're in your position now you're re- retired correct correct yes yeah so I think a lot of people this is something my dad's struggling with right now is trying to figure out you know how to structure your time and it can be if you don't actively or proactively go at that problem it could be a uh, it could be an issue you know you find yourself days just start flipping by and nothing's nothing's happening
2: <laughs> this is this is you know, this has been my experience. Like I, 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 when I left the military, you know, it was, it was because I, I was emotionally hurt from those experiences. This is, that's just my journey. You know what I mean? I know a lot of, a lot of guys in the military that are um, just doing a great job and exceptional at what they do. And that's their journey. They're meant to do that. Right. They live it. They breathe it. They're smart. Um, my heart, got hurt by those experiences. So it pushed me away from it. And I realized, okay, now I've got an opportunity to just, um, retire or step away from, to work, from work and and work on myself. But the longer you do that, the more you realize like, what's my purpose here, right? Like, what am I doing? I I left the military because I had some concerns with what I was doing. Um, but now, now what? Right. You can work on yourself all you want and you can build yourself back up, which is what I've done over the last, you know, five, six years. And I'm really happy about that. But you're right. The problem becomes now, how do I fit into society? How do I become useful? Right. Because I personally believe we're all connected in strange ways. And if you don't recognize that connection through good work, whatever good work is to you following your conscience, you'll pay for it. Yeah. you'll pay i pay for it when i'm not contributing i feel it in weird ways right mm-hmm. so yeah uh, if we're if that's you know i don't know if that's kind of we're on the same page with what you said before but that's kind um, of like-
1: yeah no that's uh i don't think there could be a better thing to do with your time <laughs> and it's something that a lot of people i think get either too busy uh doing you know they get kind of pigeonholed in their whatever their life is with family and kids and they don't uh or uh, whatever it may be, they don't stop and kind of take stock of what's important to them and then try to direct their energy in that towards those ends. And right. the thing you're doing every Sunday, I, I, that looks like the strategy that you're using there. It's And it's important. And the connectivity thing, absolutely. Oh. Uh, I think uh, we seem to be all similar here in, in the need for that. I mean, let's be honest. There's people out there who you know, I think they could, would make, they'd be excellent hermits. No problem. It's not going to bother them one way or the other. Um, and for all my self-isolation and anti, anti-social behavior over the years, I still need like I, I am a human being and I'm still a, a um, an animal that needs connection. So yeah, I, I hear that.
0: So Chris, can you, can you tell us a little bit or give our listeners an idea of what your, your, your service history was like with the Canadian military?
2: Sure. Yeah. I was, uh, I was part of the Canadian military for just under 10 years. <clears throat> and, uh, while I was uh, employed with the the Canadian military, I was uh, an infantry officer, which, um, for the majority of my role as, as an infantry officer, I was a platoon commander. So essentially, um, you can kind of think of it as uh, maybe the boss of a small organization. And I say that really loosely because I wasn't really the boss of anything. You know what I mean? I was kind of managing, um, managing the intelligence of the pl- platoon and I had mm-hmm. a lot of help with that. Right. So um, as a platoon commander, you got 30 soldiers underneath of you roughly and um, and side by side. So next to me are going to be some very experienced soldiers. Right. Um, some, some non-commissioned officers, some sergeants, warrant officers, people that have been in there for 30, 30 years. Right. And they're, they're, they're really the people that run the platoon. You're just, uh, my job is the connection to the chain of command, the higher ups. So they're going to brief me on what kind of missions or operations they want to have um, completed. And then I'm going to take that um, information back to the platoon and use the brain power of that platoon to, to figure out a plan. So I'm just kind of the, the the conductor loosely do you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah that yep. makes sense i've never heard anybody put it like that before and i've kind of been curious as to the way that structure works but that uh, that sounds very much like uh you know like a commercial operation as far as you know you know like a a structure that 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 you need to have once things get to a certain level of complexity so yeah that you, makes sense so does of- that
0: mean that you do you do you get it from both sides then are you getting sort of pressure from above and you're also answerable to your, to your troops?
2: Absolutely. You know um, it's, 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 it's the accountability and the order orders and information coming from above kind of uh, illuminating you on the situation that's unfolding around you and what might need to be done, where you might need to go. Um, You're basically staying abreast of what's going on and your commanders are filtering that information to you. And then when they need something to be done, they're going to ask it to be done. And they're going to be asked ask it to be done in a very specific way. It's called the commander's intent. Mm-hmm. So you're going to take that intent, what he wants done, and you're going to deliver that to the platoon. Um, and you're going to deliver it in a way where you're, you're, you're coming up with a plan to satisfy that intent. And, and a smart infantry officer is going to use that platoon, right? It's going to use all the knowledge from the private all the way up to the warrant that's 30 years in. I just kind of would step back and allow them to kind of analyze the information and you'd hear all kinds of great ideas start coming out. And then you, and then you could kind of manage that information and that, that they really liked because you talk about the pressure from a, below. If you neglected their wisdom, like I'm the boss, I come up with the plans, <laughs> you're in deep shit. Your career is going to be short-lived um, they're not going to do what you want them to do, and it may get far worse than that, right? Um, so it's you—you have to manage that pressure from both sides. I—I'd um, I'd like to think I, I did it okay or well without being hubristic, but at the same time, I think the quality that allowed me to do that well also hurt me because I—I have a heart, right? And—and it's—it's and yeah. it's a strange situation. I don't know if I was particularly the best man for that job, just because of my the way the way my chemistry is, I guess, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. The way you're, you're putting that because it, I think about uh, when I have been in in any kind of a situation that's similar to that uh, with in my career as a pharmacist, where, you know, you're expected to kind of you're liable, I guess, is what the word is there for what uh, you know, if you're managing a store, you're liable for what the ownership wants. And Every single time I see somebody attempt as in that position to go top down and neglect everybody uh, beneath them, it's a disaster. And it surprises me that it still goes on, and that by now, I, I, I mean, I, I approached it the same way you did, Chris, and I, I thought that that would be a, a fairly well-known strategy, and that <laughs> why wouldn't you do that? I mean, uh, you've got all that information there. You've got all those people who you can't know more than all of them. Right. And why, why would you pretend to? You know, yeah. you have a responsibility, but the most intelligent thing to do under those circumstances is to use the resources you have. And uh,
2: it's, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. <laughs> and I'm, I'm listen, I, I've made lots of mistakes. I've crossed boundaries and, and did not ask for help when I should have. Like I've been ignorant in a lot of ways and it's, 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 it's something right. Because you're right. You, you start, when you start seeing these experiences, I'll speak for myself in the military and you're seeing people at different levels of understanding. I want to say, let's call it consciously aware of their surroundings mm-hmm. and, and that, that different level of awareness causes you to make a different type of decision. Um, and and once I discovered that in my li- line of employment, I started seeing it everywhere, right? Just this this differing degree of awareness. And um, I try not to judge that anymore. I got really angry for a long time when I left the military because I was like, "Why can't people see some of the things I see?" And that was a that was the wrong standpoint. That was a very hubristic standpoint. I realized that we're all on different adventures or different spots along our journey. And, um, yeah, I don't know where I'm exactly going with this, but I, you know, it, it kind of was, um, following a thread from what you said. You, you know-
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I have had the same frustration with society in general, and I think it's contributed a lot to, uh, the overall decline of my stress or of my, uh, my being. Um, and not being aware of it like I was in my twenties, I you know like you say, that hubris where well, why can't everybody see things the way i'm seeing them um, It contributed to that it was one of the factors that that kind of added to the angst that I felt about the world because it made it feel to me like if these if the people around me can't see things the way I see them then there's no hope, but that is not, that is an irrational belief and it's not true and it's full of hubris.
2: Yeah. I've come full circle, like, because it's, I'm a human being, we're all human beings. So I, I've assumed over the last five years that my journey through PTSD and what I'm learning about myself can be somewhat applicable to others, you know? And my biggest problem has been my ego, right? Mm. Like it's tricked me and gotten, Roadblocks put up in front of me, and and just lured me in weird directions along my journey of recovery. And that's been a very, very intriguing thing for me just to discover because if this is happening with me, it's happening to probably other people as well. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and then I, I, and that's gotten me into all kinds of problems, right? Um, and it's hurt me in a lot of ways. Like, for instance. This is the way I I analyze my situation now. My hubris, my ego allowed me to join the military as a commander, thinking that I could go overseas and affect positive change, Mm. right? From this perspective, it's like, what was I thinking? You know, it it brings to mind the concept, the fog of war. You know, war is so incredibly complex that it really is outside of the ability of the human mind to to rationalize all the variables. So we're going to mess it up always. And it's going to cost, it's going to cost human life unnecessarily. So sometimes I scratch my head from my new perspective and it's like, what the fuck was I doing? Mm. You know? So I try not to judge people these days because I've come full circle on so many things. Mm. Oh my God, Chris, how could you be so blind yet so vocal about your position? You know, it's like,
1: yeah, well, we're dynamic in nature and, uh, I think, you know, even in my twenties, even that fact eluded me, you know, I, you kind of, if you're, if you're not diligent uh, in your own personal kind of growth, then you can become so stagnant that, that maybe you, you believe that your views will never change. And for some people, perhaps they don't change very much, but if you're doing any kind of positive work on yourself or, or at least trying and challenging the beliefs that you have one day and realizing that they don't line up with what you believe the next, then this is the very nature of growth. And, and yeah, you can't, what, what can you do? I think you gotta be, um, it took me personally quite a while to be kind enough to myself to say, look, man, Jesus, I I, I used to beat myself up uh, about things I did that when I was a kid, I'm like, listen, you, would you do that to anybody else? It's ridiculous. You know, you, you can't uh, expect yourself to know what to do in every situation and you got to cut yourself some slack.
2: I think, I think you, you touched on something very important and, and, and people may con- consider this woo woo, but the, the concept of self-love, you know what I mean? Like um, the better I feel, the more I, or the more I love myself, the better I feel. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Um but- I came out of the army really angry and maybe I had some reason to be angry, but I allowed that, that, that observation of reality to absorb into me to become such a heavy emotion that it broke me in a lot of ways. And that process was under my control. I didn't have to allow that to happen. I could have handled that differently. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: It's interesting though. Cause I think, And you mentioned, you know, the size of your heart, the, the, the depths with which you felt the world around you, but that doesn't just because you feel like that doesn't mean that you or I in that moment have the ability to self-love.
2: Right. Right. In fact,
0: it's, I I think it, we may find that it's often counter to that, that, that there's some, at least for myself that it was, I I was anything but self-loving in those times when I was feeling the depths of human suffering at, at its greatest
2: right right and that's been my experience too it's it's this weird conundrum I've found myself in and it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I can wrap my mind around what's actually happening a lot of self-reflection was it's like wow you've been um it's not seeking external validation maybe in a weird way but giving love to the world in the wrong places right and then Mm -hmm. and realizing wow it it led me astray in a weird way, and this can all be remedied by 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 giving love to the proper place, which is myself. Um, it took me a while to figure that out, and I have to believe a big part of that was because of my ego. I got a big ego. I'll admit it. It's why I keep it in check all of the time. It's why I work so hard to be disciplined to stay on top of that demon, to keep my foot on its neck, right?
1: Yeah. Um, um, I just, I, I think it's a if you've still got that uh, quote you you told me earlier, Corey, I think that's uh, really relevant to you know, that, that self-love aspect where you, you've got to give yourself a chance to adapt and grow, right? Corey's got a good quote for this.
0: Yeah. Um, just bear with me here for a second, folks.
1: So we always expect you, like we... I by my nature expect too much of myself. And it's this balance between self-discipline and being on my own team. I've realized I can't sit there and crack the whip endlessly and expect myself to do things that are ridiculously over the top. It's not productive. It doesn't work in the end. I have to I have to be gentle. And
0: yeah. So this is this is Ram Das. This is from Be Here Now. And Ram Das says, you can't rip. The skin off the snake, the snake must molt the skin. that is the rate that it happens uh, you have to let it happen
2: very interesting, and i 've been thinking about that a lot lately too. You know what I mean? It seems like I like Ram das he 's very interesting was a very interesting wise man and and he 's helped me a lot over the years kind of understand kind of like um, he 's a bit of a user manual. Uh, for what's going on inside me i listen to him and i'm like okay i'm kind of figuring this process out right yeah yeah it's it's i didn't there's a famous quote by einstein called and basically it is it's 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 your job and my job to figure out the rules to the game and play them better than anybody else and as i go through this process that ramdas talks about It's like, I can't help but notice there's some sort of social game going on. We're all connected in strange ways. And I just wasn't playing the social game correctly. Mm. If this social game operates on love, there's an energy transfer between all of us. I just wasn't understanding that the first place the love needs to go is here. Yeah. Once I raise this light, the lights around me can start to come up too. It's like a network. And I was focusing all my energy on the lights around me. And it's like trying to give them my love. And mine's just dimming and dimming and dimming. And they're kind of looking at me like, what the fuck's wrong with this guy? And it's like, it's the process is backwards. And I had, I, I, you know, sometimes I wonder if that's what he was talking about. Because when you look at Einstein, he's so childlike in his mannerisms and full of love. And it's like, you know if 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 this is some sort of social game and you're rewarded in strange ways for your actions and your love and your mannerisms, my God, we still remember this man today. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think about things like this yeah
0: so chris mm-hmm. how how soon into your military experience <clears throat> did you realize that you that that the the amount that you felt the the pain of the world around you and and what was happening, what you were seeing? how early did you realize that that was problematic or could get you into, get you into some personal trouble?
2: Childhood. Really, really, Really it's eerie, right? Like I, this is something that's popped up in my mind as I've the last five years moving from the military onward, kind of through my recovery is these weird realizations. And one of the weird realizations that I've had over the last five years is that I've been thinking about, I want to say mortality and death for a very long time since I was a child, right? It's always been in my mind. And I I was put on antidepressants as a child because I was so obsessed with these thoughts about what is this? Where am I? What's going on here? Like, and I'd ask adults questions and they'd be kind of like, shut up, just go away and go do this. And eventually it was like, okay, I'm just going to shut up and go away and do this. And that led to a lot of things like joining the military and that, that hurt my heart. Right. I just don't think I was satisfying what that kid wanted all those years ago, whatever it is, I'm still trying to figure out this quest for knowing more about my place in reality. And, and I don't, some people, I don't see that in them. And I don't know if this is just something unique to, to addicts or I, you know, like addicts to me, when I, when I, for my journey, since the military, I've been in rehabs, for over a year i've met a lot of smart addicts it's kind of shocked me (laughs) how smart some of these addicts are doctors nurses lawyers psychologists psychiatrists cops paramedics nurses veterans It just kind of and then you have everybody else who you know i've i've met people on the street that were viciously intelligent and i'm like what is going on here Are people medicating something that we don't understand this feeling toward an inauthentic world? That's been my experience because like, it's really easy to dismiss addicts, but I'll tell you from my experience, it makes the hair stand up on my arms talking about this. There are some smart people out there trapped in addiction, and I can't help but think if that's part of the problem.
1: Well, I I don't know how it relates to intelligence, but I do know from what i've seen with obsidian and what i've learned over the last few years and myself included there seems to be a it's a type of mind and it's a mind that that is sensitive to external stimuli in a way that might be a little bit different than other people and this sensitivity combined with maybe some genetic factors i don't know how much that plays in i suspect quite a bit but it it puts you in a position where whether you're you know regardless of your intelligence If you're living in any kind of cognitive dissonance, which many people are, it's almost impossible to avoid some now, you can't help but feel this existential angst. And if you have that sensitivity, it becomes overwhelming to the point that you seek solace anywhere. And that's excellent fuel for addictive behavior. And I think it's one of the reasons why opiates uh, is such an effective strategy for dealing with that cognitive dissonance Mm,
2: mm -hmm. that's very intriguing that makes a lot of sense to me because from my own personal experiences i don't know it may have been i want to say it was huxley but i'm not sure talked about the lenses of perception Mm -hmm. you view reality through your lenses of perception and they become colored in very strange ways Mm -hmm. and my, uh, my traumas have colored my lenses of perceptions in very strange ways and i can distort the reality that i'm seeing through them doesn't matter of my intelligence you know or any of these people that i've seen the conversations i have with them you're right the first thing not the first thing one of the things that's popped into my mind over the years is the idea of sensors like it's like human or human being sensors or some some human being sensing reality at a base reality at a higher degree than others like if you think about what this is, it's just incoming vibrations, energy, sound, um, and it's being converted into electrochemical energy. And is isn't it, is it possible that some of that that conversion is different? Or like, I'm not sure. Do you know? Like,
1: yeah. Well, again, if you're going to go with Huxley, um, one of the more interesting concepts, and he had so many. I mean, the guy's a goddamn genius. But uh, his his concept of the brain as a filter, as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, just a uh, you know a, a tool for managing our our uh, perceptive abilities, and if that were so that like his idea was that there is so much more coming at us all the time that we 're not seeing we can't we just don 't have the tools to perceive them. there could be an entire world around us, conversations, realities, times, everything flowing around us all the time we don 't perceive them whatsoever because our brain just funnels them out. It's the only way we can survive. If we had access to everything that was going on around us, your head would explode. We don't have the processor to deal with it. So if you were using his idea of a filter and then adding that to the sensitivity kind of theory, you could see how maybe some people's filter doesn't filter out quite as much as other people's.
2: Mm, uh, Yeah, this this resonates with... um some of the individuals that I've had conversations with over the years, personal conversations that, um, that are hard to dismiss Mm -hmm. meet individuals on the street that other people may run away and dismiss, say they're filthy, dirty addicts. Right. But I've spent time with a lot of these people and had deep conversations. And from my experience through life, my journey, some of the stuff they say doesn't sound too crazy to me. You know, they say they, I've had people say, claim, they say, claim, they see and hear weird things. I don't discredit it because I don't know what's out there. You know, I know we operate on a very limited visual spectrum.
1: Um, this is exactly the way I see it too. And it's the reason I'm agnostic. I see, uh, When I see somebody who claims to know what's going on here, I get very suspicious.
2: I don't think anybody does.
1: That's the thing. Um, So when when somebody is dismissive of another person's opinion because it seems too out there, non-scientific, there's no evidence, I totally understand that line of reasoning, but I won't close the door on that person because the possibility remains that whatever that person is experiencing is real as far as their perception goes and maybe on a grander scale.
2: That's very interesting. Yeah. I like the way you articulated that. That makes a lot of sense from my experiences. You know, these are tricky conversations to have, right? Because they're right on the, the frontier of, of knowledge and, and people are very um, sketchy about having these conversations. I'm okay with having them. From my perspective, with what John Hopkins Harvard, MIT, Yale, they're talking like we're getting into psychedelics now, right? Which which kind of cleanse the lenses of perception as like Huxley talked about a bit. It kind of opens your ability to see reality. They're reporting scientifically that, that, that large numbers of, of peer groups are seeing the same things, reporting the same things. Like now I'm not saying that this is really happening, but this requires further investigation for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And it's it, it yeah. and I I was just I was thinking this morning, it, it is so bizarre how things have changed now with science. It I it used to be that I would I would get some kind of information bro science style, you know, and I would look at the information and like, okay, well, we'll check that out. Let's see what uh let's see what peer-reviewed science has to say, and I'll make a, sort of a decision based on that. And I was thinking today that it is now actually the opposite. I'm digging into older studies that were abandoned, usually due to financial, you know, the evidence was suggesting excellent effect. Um, you know, all these studies were showing promise right into human trials, and then they were dropped for whatever, in some cases, it's uh, uh, psychedelics, other things like ketamine, and then uh, uh, and, uh, MDA, um, NAD+, plus, all these things. There's excellent evidence, but they couldn't find a way to patent the molecule, whatever the case, they drop it. So I'm looking, I'm seeing that. And now I got to go to bro science to see if I can back that up. In other words, I'm looking at outside the normal, the normal way science works and it's completely backwards, but I have no choice because I can't trust the peer review science anymore. It's very strange.
2: I don't know what this means, but I see it as well. You know, and I've been highly critical and assessing the situation like with friends and family, but I don't know. What I do know is my own personal journey, you know, and, and let's go back to Afghanistan. When I was in Afghanistan, I'll speak about my story. I'm a commander in Afghanistan, overseeing training uh, within a large uh, a military installation in, in Afghanistan, just outside of Kabul. And what I'm seeing are large-scale military-industrial corporations basically running the show? Big business, right? Like that's what I saw. And and like
1: Halliburton stuff like that. They uh,
2: Ray, Raytheon, MPRI, these big military-industrial corporations that just basically move in and run the show.
1: So they're I mean, actually making decisions. They're not just selling weapons. Or
2: I I don't know so much about selling weapons, but what I do okay. know. They're basically performing the duties that the army usually would perform in terms okay. of logistics, um, overseeing a lot of the training, providing leadership training. So a lot of civilians providing the Afghan National Army with leadership training, their military. And it's like, shouldn't we, the military leadership, be providing that training? This, this is becoming too, um, too, too uh, business oriented, Right. Like and that's where I started getting sketched out, and and and, and you see these, uh, you know, Tim Hortons, Pizza Hut, it's just moving in, and it's like, well, wait a second, do they even want this stuff? And on top of that, like, there's there's thousands and thousands of these civilians, um, being killed on on the side over here, so it becomes a very disturbing situation that that really um, warped my. I, I forget what we were talking about this before.
1: huh? I, sorry well, it's, it's no problem our job is to uh, to keep everything on track and, and you're, you're yeah. just, you got so much interesting stuff to talk about Chris it's hard to, uh, hard keep, to keep, keep. keep going Chris I,
2: yeah but I, what was the original point that I was tying this into do you remember
1: well we' you've you've talked about before how um,
2: I got it I got oh, it okay so, so you're seeing all this go on right and, and and my job at the at the end of the day is to report what I'm seeing. Back to my supervisors. And what I'm seeing is 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 large-scale military-industrial corporations taking over and large numbers of civilians being killed. And you realize after you try to push this information up the chain of command that no, they they don't really want to hear it. They want to hear the success, successful parts of the operation. And I'm not saying there's some malevolent strategy at play. It could be just human nature. But I'll tell you that that the public's idea of what happened in afghanistan is grossly misinformed i think i think there was a lot of good work done early on in the war and then it morphed into this animal that just made money right and what's what's terrifying is that that when the war ended it just collapsed there was no exit strategy big business doesn't give a shit about exit strategies right you Mm. saw this error unfold on tv everyone's wondering how did this happen well big business just went Let's go home.
0: Yeah.
2: And then you're left with this brittle infrastructure of American soldiers, Canadian NATO soldiers that are fucking panicking, right? What do we do? Holy shit. Save your ass and whoever's around you and head to the airport because big business didn't give a shit. The hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, trillions of dollars they made. And they couldn't even stay a couple extra days to make sure that everybody got okay. And that there was no mess. And, 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 this ties back into what you're saying because if you can hide this or distort this in a very strange way from the public back home, where else is, is this ignorance happening?
1: Yeah, everywhere. That's
2: money in business. Because, in my personal opinion, everything that saved my life from addiction is, is illegal, and that's scary. And I don't understand what that means. Everything that pulled me from the ditches was illegal.
1: Yeah. You know? Well, this, I think all the things you're talking about there, I mean, that, that is a, that's a huge kind of uh, topic on its own, what's going on in that kind of sector of the world. But from your perspective, when you were over there, you, like you said, you, when you, you started, you showed up and, and your idea was you were going to make a difference there. And then something changed. You started seeing these things that didn't make sense. Um, and then, you i'm assuming you start to feel some kind of uh cognitive dissonance or angst or whatever you want to call it so at what point and i don't know if this is the way you did you use opiates over there as a coping strategy for that angst or was that something that just went hand in hand with the war
2: yeah so yeah let's let's be a little more specific about how my yeah. problems really started to cascade um growing up um you know, I knew I was a little bit different. I sensed and felt the world a little bit differently. I'm confident in saying this today. I don't know if I was different than most, but I was just feel different. And I, I realized that um throughout university and 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 all that. Actually let me let me start again. All right. I'm I'm trying to carry a thought here. I got too many thoughts going on in my mind.
1: Yeah, that's no problem, man. You're doing awesome.
2: My my problem with opiates and 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 heroin and and all that stuff started like basically before the military. Um, I wasn't much of a drinker. I used to go to clubs and party, but I realized very quickly that opiates were what soothed me and I didn't abuse them. I wasn't addicted to them back then. The reason I say the problem started back then is because I realized this was my thing, right? Like the alcoholic realizes, like the gambling addict realizes like that was my thing. The link. Yeah. The thing that soothed my emotional disturbance is the best. Mm -hmm. So that was like my occasional once every few months party thing. Then I got serious about life and joined the military, trying to affect positive change, right? Putting my heart forward. Let's move into this job. Didn't touch it. Did the training, graduated training, started doing my job deployed to Afghanistan working over there at the training center, doing my job, reporting back what I'm seeing, which was a lot of big business and special players at work, kind of controlling the situation in weird ways. I was providing security for them, which I found strange. Mm. Um, And a lot of civilian death that uh, that just seemed unnecessary to me. It just seemed unnecessary at this point. Mm. You know, it was 2012, this is unnecessary at this point. Um, And you you report that back. And it's just like, Chris, you can't say these things in the reports. Like, just here's what you need to say. Just, just smooth it out like this. This is going to be good for you, for me, for the promotion, for the unit, for morale, right? This type of information just, just grinds people and slows people down. So, you know, and then, you're like, okay, and you step on your conscience, right? And you change it. You do that for months, month after month after month. That does something to you, especially when you're observing people around you and everyone's doing it. Mm -hmm. And you realize this is systematic in some strange way. Where else is this going on in government? I, I don't even necessarily know if I'm seeing evil, just ignorance at play. That's just fucking having terrifying effects on the system. Tens of thousands of deaths out of ignorance and it's at that point for me that became so overwhelming that while I was doing my job I was interacting with this really smart very interesting Afghan colonel so I'd plug in with him every morning and we'd oversee the training and what needed to be done where where in the desert are we going to take these guys to train what weapons are we using today what are we working with You know, what's the what's the uh, battlefield geometry like in terms of are there any enemies or around or what do you know about the situation? They always know more. The Afghans are tapped into the society, right? The culture. So I had a really good relationship with him because he could save my ass. I didn't want him on my bad terms. So we'd meet up every morning and he loved his tea and he shared his tea with me. And that tea made me feel real good. Nice, warm, slight Mm -hmm. buzz made me made me operate a little more smooth with decisions. And and I didn't have as much fear. And, you know, that was that was opium tea, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, listen, you know, what you're doing is tacitly not right. But you know, where the limit is at first, right? You all know that when you start diving into drugs, there's a limit there that you can kind of manage. And that I functioned really well at that limit. I was more articulate, I had more energy. I wasn't scared. I, I was functioning at a high level. And then you go down the other side of that and it mm-hmm. starts bobbing from you. I started needing it daily. I started needing to be able to find him daily and meet up with him in order to have that in order to do my job. Um, and I got very sick over there, you know, and I had to take a few days off and just gather my thoughts. And, and I went through withdrawals cause I ran out towards the end of my tour my job shifted. I went into a new job and I didn't have access to this colonel anymore, which means I went into withdrawals and I got very sick in the camp. And, um, you know, as all liars or addicts do, I was a pretty good liar. And I told everyone that I was just feeling unwell. The interesting thing was uh, I had, I have a really good friend that joined the military with me. Right. And he knew me before the military. And I remember he was the only one in the camp that was just like, there's something going on with you. This is strange. Mm. And he told other people, I don't, think, I don't think Meisner's entirely telling the truth. There's something strange about this situation. I don't know if he has the flu. I remember that to this day. You know, people know at some level about dishonesty, right? Yeah. I've noticed these things, and it, it all ties in somehow, this emotional feeling. We can emotionally sense and feel our reality around us to such a high degree. Sometimes I think we can even sense deception without even knowing it. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how my journey started. Those drugs, like like you know, opiates just they they sunk into me. And when I left that war zone and came home, it just easily morphed into the prescription pills and whatever I could find. Anything that was an opiate was gonna do just fine. And in my darkest moments when I couldn't find anything, the codeine will work. I'll go to the drugstore and I'll get the codeine, right? Um, And that's an animal that that gets out of control because it's effective. It'll numb you. Yeah, it'll numb you. And then you do crazy shit because you're numb, because you can't feel the social game anymore. And that's when I really started fucking myself. You leave Afghanistan, you do a noble thing and you pull yourself away from that and you get hubristic and you start talking about what you think you're seeing. And I started feeling like shit. And then I needed to medicate myself. And that became a whole new animal, right? Um, and that was many years of pain and drug use that just made my situation worse.
1: Right. So go ahead, Corey.
2: Chris, I was going to ask you two questions.
0: One had, did you encounter heroin in Afghanistan? And secondly, I wanted to ask just in general, apart from your performance as you know, your actual job performance, what did it, what did it do to your, your spiritual self and your emotional self? with that dissonance that you were experiencing
2: well, all over there. Yeah. Yeah. I felt um, a level of uh, somewhat indest- indestructible yeah, yeah. like um, walking on air, never a care, you yeah. know, which, which is, which is a superpower in a war zone. Right. Yeah. Right. Like people, this is what I mean. People think addicts are stupid. Right. But for me, the way I analyzed the situation was I'm in a war zone. This is real. This is real shit. And if there's a leg up I can have on my enemy, if I don't have to feel my emotions, I mean, this makes sense to me.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, put the if you put the cast, the stigma part to the side, Regardless of you know what people think about drugs or what they think they think about drugs is is one thing, but the objective reality of whether or not that substance was effective for you under those circumstances is uh, you know that's the that's the truth for you in that those those drugs were providing you with a an ability to sustain yourself in an environment that who knows maybe it would have you know Maybe it would have hurt you mentally more had you not had access to that. I don't know. But it, it seemed that in my situation, uh, and I was in no war zone, uh, but there was enough, I was uncomfortable enough that those drugs provided that dampening down and I was able to continue to do my job. Had I not had that, I, I don't think I could, some of the places I worked, I don't think I could have worked.
2: Well, that's don't discredit your place of employment because what I've realized is we're all facing our own little war zone.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's true. Yeah.
2: And, and this is where I've, I've, for me personally, it's like, I think about this often, do we need to retool what we believe and accept and acknowledge addiction to be? Oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) because To me, it's like, you know, for me, it's like, you know, what is addiction? It's just (laughs) repetitious, unconscious behavior That negatively affects yourself and people around you and 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 when I look around society it's like everything's an addiction Mm -hmm. yoga fitness your 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 broker uh bitcoin um you know pick your your particular religious bent um it's like we're all plugged into something and it can all get out of control and we're all numbing ourselves in weird ways with these weird food you know it's absolutely and it's like we pick and choose which ones we which ones we denigrate the most you know what i mean yeah. it's like how dare they meanwhile it's like life is one big drug experience the food you eat is a drug experience the the air you breathe in is producing a drug experience like the water you drink is a drug experience it's like i just i don't know And this is where we get into the realm of psychedelics. It's like, where do psychedelics fit in? It's a drug, but so is food. And food is essential to our well-being and health. Could it possibly be that psychedelics are in some way? I don't, you know.
1: Well, Huxley believes so. And there's been many cultures over the years that believe so. And uh, I think that psychedelics are a tool that if we took as much time as we did, you know, with drugs like Lipitor and, the resources that we pour into these barely effective pharmaceuticals and poured those into to psychedelics in a real way that, uh, uh, harnessing the full positive mind opening effect of these, of these, you know, whatever you want to call them, plants, fungi, medicines. I, I can't imagine that that would be a bad thing long-term. And it, look at how long it's taken us to get to this point where it's become socially acceptable to microdose mushrooms or you got guys in Silicon Valley who are microdosing uh, LSD like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, unheard of. Right.
2: Uh, I'll, uh, you know, I'll say this, I'll speak from my own personal experience. When I left the military at the tail end of all that chaos that I spoke about, just that slide into shit, there were a, beautiful group of people that kind of grabbed hold of me and they worked at an organization called marijuana for trauma. And I knew nothing about cannabis, plant medicine, nothing. Um, and they grabbed hold of me. And what they did at first was just get their arms around me and help with my daily routine, drive me places. Cause I had lost my license and car drive me places, get, get me some food, provide me some com- company, And then slowly opened the conversation to, Chris, would you consider some cannabis oil or cannabis to pull you down off these opiates? And, and, and I, I I should have been more receptive sooner, but it was so such a new area to me that I was cautious, sketchy. I didn't like the way cannabis made me feel sometimes Mm -hmm. used a lot of excuses. I'm very thankful. Those people really came at me like that because the cannabis did help reduce the withdrawal symptoms and get me to a spot where I could start, focusing on myself and loving myself again um the most beautiful thing marijuana for trauma did for me was in the midst of my chaos I remember the owner leaned in and said Chris when you're serious about recovery try mushrooms and I was like okay you know in my mind I'm like what the fuck is this guy talking about you know And that stuck in my mind for years. And um, after the cannabis helped me get to a position where I had a doctor, like a a civilian doctor after the military, a psychologist, an occupational therapist, I had a team around me. I decided to try some of these mushrooms, right? I was smart enough to realize I don't want to go diving into this world before I've got some sort of structure around me. I, I took it serious. Psychedelics... Are beautifully terrifying. (laughs) Right? They have they saved my life. They saved my ass. They made me a better person. They humbled me. But be careful what you wish for. And the more I familiarize myself with psychedelics and humble myself to psychedelics, the more I realize that psychedelics have taught me that I don't know as much about reality as I thought. <laughs>
3: that's
2: yeah, a terrifyingly humble, for me, beautifully loving thing. But it's taken me a long time to accept maybe what I'm seeing. And I don't know if what I'm seeing is true. But for me, it is. But I don't know how these compounds will change our society, but rest assured, they will. If these move mainstream... Rest assured that this will change things forever.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it might be the thing. I mean, if there's been this movement for a long time or an attempt at a movement to uh, to get some kind of a way to put a stop to the 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 level of division that we're seeing in North America, and nothing seems to be working. We just keep getting it. It seems to be getting worse. Where Everybody is a, everything that we uh, interact with is another inflammatory, uh, inflammatory tool designed to invoke an emotional response that further divides us and, and further pushes you into one camp of thought or belief. And I, for the longest time, even when I was a teenager, uh, and it's funny that I, I remember thinking, you know, if everybody in the world just did mushrooms three times, that's it as a, as a, that was the requisite, you know, it was a, a cultural thing. We did them at maybe it could be a certain age, 15, 18, 25, whatever you want to do. Imagine the impact that that would have on that divisiveness because you, the, what you're talking about there, Chris is exactly the same thing. It's the same conclusion I came to after extensive experimentation in that realm to the point where I okay, you know, I I think I've got it all figured out. And then you get slapped across the face and that's exactly what you're here not to to, to leave with as a message. The message is there's more going on here than you could possibly imagine. And we know very, very little about what that is.
2: Well, listen, I'm a stubborn dude, right? And (laughs) as my psychologist and I have figured out, I'm kind of an all or nothing dude Mm. and kind of why I've had some problems with addiction, um, I dove into that psychedelic hole head first and I pushed the limits. It's Carl Jung that said, be careful with these experiences. They may be more real than you want them to be. And I think that that is very, very wise advice. I needed it. I mm-hmm. needed it. I used to be very vocal and I still, I, I love psychedelics. I love mushrooms. vocal they can change the world but it needs to be done right it needs to be done right and i've been vocal sometimes about mushrooms and paid for it in ways that are almost unimaginable we don't know what these are we don't know what psychedelics are and they hold you accountable in very strange ways it's -hmm. almost like morally accountable. This is, this, is, this is why I talk about this social game. We're all connected. For me, psychedelics have revealed at least, and this is just my own personal experience, that we're connected in undeniable, phenomenal, beautiful ways. And that, that for me, it's like, I can't help but feel that we're part of some sort of energy exchange. And if you're not very careful about how you exchange energy, you'll pay for it. More so, it, the more you're aware of how this works, mm-hmm. if you misbehave or abuse that knowledge, you pay for it even more. And that, to me, is terrifying, and I don't understand what that means.
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's a lot like Adam and Eve when uh, they choose the tree of knowledge. I think there's a limit to, to our capacity at this point in our evolution. And if there is something governing this place uh, or something with a vested interest in it, they've given us access to the tools to push that a little bit. But like you said, you have to be careful with <laughs> with how far you're going to go in that direction, because uh, we're also not designed to keep our feet on the ground if uh, you know you spend too much time in that realm and, and you'll lose this one that's.
2: I think that's, I think what you said is more profound and serious than most understand. If you spend too much time in that realm, you'll lose this one. Like, I don't know, but like, you know, once you start messing around with these things, at least for me, it started to become obvious that there are some individuals throughout history that have also done the same thing.
1: Mm. You
2: know, you look at Huxley.
1: Huxley's a big one. Yeah.
2: Frederick Nietzsche. It's very likely that he was involved in something. There's these people that just pop. Einstein, I don't know for sure, but listen, some of the things Einstein says says, and I read between the lines, it's like, you see these types of things in psychedelic experiences. Now, I'm not sure. I don't think you need psychedelics to get to these places, right? I'm not saying that. But I do see people from history that may have handled whatever this is incorrectly. Just just my observation, I don't know. You look at Frederick Nietzsche, it's like he was he got very critical and vocal about what he was thinking he was seeing. I don't know. You know, that that man died young. He died young. And his last words as he woke up from the coma were, Mommy, I'm stupid. I I, I see these things sometimes, and it's like I just we just don't know enough to know but it's very interesting observation i see one of my heroes terrence McKenna you know who 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 did these things a lot he said these these his experiences and his love for going there and talking about it was pressure on the imagination pressure and he, and, on the imagination and he passed away very young in life right and then there was Alan watts a very famous buddhist um who spoke yes. these things a lot. And Alan Watts had a very famous quote, and I'll remember this. I remember this rings for me. It's the only thing worse than playing this game too hard is giving the game away. And sometimes I wonder if those are very serious, very true words. Alan Watts died in his fifties, I think, of alcoholism. It's just, I don't know what that means or is. could be nothing. It's just an observation, but it's an interesting observation. you know, to, to consider if, if not to just throw
1: it into the, the silence.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no, they don't know. Those guys uh, you're talking about some real um, amazing humans. It gives me an incredible amount of hope for, for mankind. When you see that those are, those individuals are around and they were around at the time they were, and they were doing what they're doing and came up with thoughts like, I can't imagine what it would have been like for somebody like Huxley to exist with that brain at that time. He was so far ahead, he's still ahead of us.
2: It's it's terrifying when you see it.
1: Yeah. Like
2: it, and that's why I think there's a large group of my friends that just don't won't acknowledge that part of reality. Like I actually have friends that won't even engage with Huxley. They don't go near them and I don't know why it's just I think there's a mechanism built inside of us that just protects you somehow from being overwhelmed with too much truth
1: yeah well that's I guess that's something that we can use to uh I I mean I I am curious about your uh post-traumatic stress uh diagnosis and and the generation of that was that something that just kind of came out of the war and you, when you came home, you realized that that was a, something that you left with or, um, you know, how did you find out that that was something you were faced with?
2: It wasn't, it, it was, it wasn't extremely obvious at first. It was like, um, the pain of what I, what I experienced and saw, and then the medication of that pain, And then my inability to operate in society because I was just detached so much at that point in the drug seeking routine and numb, you know, um, I couldn't evaluate what was going on with me. I was so broken and just so trying to numb that brokenness. I couldn't even step back and go, holy shit. And the medical team around me in the military, look, they're just overwhelmed with guys like me. It's not that any of them are bad people. It's just that how in the hell do you give quality service when there are a hundred guys like me that are overwhelming you with this type of information? I'm sure it was terrifying to them, right? Um, so there wasn't much diagnosis going on, there wasn't much evaluation. It was like, let's stabilize this maniac, <laughs> get him off base, get him in his house send the military police there once a week to just have coffee with them so that we know like everything's okay. And they're doing this with like a lot of people. Right. So, and they're short staffed. So it wasn't until I really rotted in that state for a while that I kind of at least had the wherewithal to raise my hand and say, I need to go to an, some sort of hospital. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I needed some self-love. I, at least I knew that at some level, and I went to um, a rehab in, in Ontario, which saved my life in a lot of ways. I'm hard on the institution. I'm hard on healthcare. I'm hard on government. But listen, I learned a lot at rehab. Didn't stay sober. I found more drugs there than ever. But I was introduced to concepts like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I was introduced to meditation, journaling, um, peer group conversations, therapy reconnecting with people, I, I re-understood the value of people and that there were really good people out there that were, are trying to help. Now I'm still really blind, but it was in that facility that they saw. This guy's really messed up. This is PTSD. This is trauma. Um, and they, they really started getting their hands on me and then sent word back to the army. When we send this guy back to you, Here's what's going on and you better take care of this situation. So it was was an act of um, self-love that really started my whole journey through being diagnosed and then coming up with strategies to treat it. I see so many veterans, especially young kids and stuff, that just stay in that pattern. They never raise their hand and say, you fucking send me to a hospital now. Or else there's there's problems. I guarantee you there's going to be problems real bad. Like I actually articulated what I was thinking of doing and and it made them go white. Right. But I needed to say that to them in order for them to take me serious.
1: Hmm. And And, and that's because of that's because of the lack of resources in that sector.
2: Just overwhelmed. Now, I was angry back then and I was, you know, where your mind goes when you're traumatized like that all these doctors are the worst of the worst. The army always picks the worst doctors. They can't even help me. Me, me, me. I'm sick. Help me. It's like, no, dude, they're overwhelmed with people coming back from war that are broken. You know, they didn't sign up for this. Mm -hmm. They didn't know this was coming, you know? And um, I see that now. And that's, it took me a long time to get diagnosed years, years. I fluttered about sick, broken, Addicted, lost my family, and I really thought that I was just less than in a lot of ways. You know, not, so, not, sorry. No, you keep going, Chris. Sorry, just just not getting it. You know, is there an
0: attitude that it that that is just the the pound of flesh, or did like did you did you end up feeling like that? You know, I I think of that. This is not a not a new the name for it is newer. I mean, going back to world war one and world war two, we would have called it shell shock mm. and had, you know, I think of, of those people and the, the zero resources, the zero mm. understanding that there was. And, but fast forward to, to 2012 or 2022 and was your perspective ever that, that there was just an acceptance that like, Hey, this is just, this is the the price.
2: I don't know if I understood it like that, but I know what you're talking about. I understood that at a certain point when I was really bottomed out, I wasn't sure if I was ever going to get out of that spot. Like I just, I just, you start to accept, you you think about destiny and all of these things. And and there were certain times when I was really low, especially in the evenings. I noticed with addiction, I go through these cyclical, emotional um, feelings and thoughts. And you, yeah. after you go through that for a number of years, you can almost time your watch to them. Yeah. And things I'd get really depressed and bummed out. How could I keep doing this to myself? Why do I keep doing these drugs? Even when I'm trying to get sober, I can't make it any more than a day or two. i I'm, I'm, This is it. I've paid the price. I'm broken. My mind will never be correct again. I could barely speak. Like I was really really broken, but I don't know. There's just always been a part of me that just deep inside, just saying, go this way, do this, do this, do this. Don't give up. Don't give up. I realized looking back, I was just thinking about this the other day. None of that was wasted time. All those years that, that particularly a year, I spent a year while I was in the army in my apartment. I didn't fucking leave it like maybe once a day for 20 minutes to get my Suboxone, right? Then I'd go home and hide. And I'd just rot and wither in there and get my drugs and just numb out. And I was a mess, just withering and just, yeah. I assumed it was all done. I don't know if that, that's what you were kind of getting at. I really bottomed out and, and lost hope. But I'll say this. I do look back and I realize that, that I wasn't appreciating what was going on. I needed to find a way out of the fog, out of the Mm -hmm. darkness, and that was going to take multiple attempts, multiple efforts. I I needed to go through that. Okay, I tried to get sober the last few days. That didn't work. What did I do wrong? Let's try this differently next time. I did that hundreds of times, you know, but um, in between those attempts at trying to get out of that hole, I was extremely discouraged. I tried to commit suicide a few times, right? Right. So that's how bad it got. I put myself in, into the emergency room. I was in the IC, ICU for a month. You know, yeah. that. like I was ready to just give up.
0: There's the, there's the um, I, in my belief, a misconception out there that opiates do numb us and they are a, a, a comforting agent. But it's not that there isn't feeling. I think there's a, the misconception that people who are using opiates aren't feeling anything. I remember being at work um, absolutely blasted on opiates and still, and and a couple of instances crying or being very near tears at what I was seeing. And, and, but it was as though that space that was created within me from, I would say from trauma and, and depression and stuff that it was as though that that space was sort of lined or maybe a little bit insulated, but that, that the pain was still hitting me and the depression was still hitting me. So I, I guess I wondered from as you started, as you were stepping away from opiates and as you were experiencing detox or, or I'll just say sobriety or, or abstinence, was it a flood of those things coming back in? Yeah. And what was that? What was that experience? I'm sure that's a heavy thing to, to
2: share, but I'm, I'm curious. It is, you know, um, and I don't mind sharing it. You know, I've done a lot of work to get to this point to share it. And you're exactly right. I was kind of getting giddy and, and emotional and smiling because that's a good way to describe it. It didn't numb me completely. I, I had a sense of sorrow in me still somewhere and some sadness. It it, it it numbed. Wow, that's an interesting question. I know exactly what you mean. And I need to think about that for a bit. But what you said is 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 authentic. It's true from, from my experience, It numbed some portion of my reality that allowed me to function a little better, but not everything. And when I did decide to get sober, yeah, there was a flood of connection is what I'd like to call it. Yeah. Stimulus that was quite overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Very much. So like uh, looking back, I didn't have a job. I had the opportunity to feel that, to accept that daily for, it took me like, a couple years of that to start feeling a little bit better. And it was intense, very much intense. My vision colors seemed Mm. brighter, smells, sounds, um, noticing stuff in my house that I hadn't noticed dirt, dirty areas that I needed to clean work that needed attention, um, stuff that had deteriorated. It's like, Oh my God, how was I oblivious to all of this (laughs) right here in front of me? You know, um, And that just built for a number of years. You know, I was so sensitive that I couldn't even sleep. Like I'd try to go to sleep and something would wake me up. Like, so, like I was so like just sensitive to the world around me, you know. And I did find more balance after a while, but it was like I numbed myself for so long that I kind of came up the other side for a while before I kind of balancing out
0: and what a what a vulnerable time like this is Nathan and I have talked about this that like this this practice, whether it's with healthcare workers or 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 veterans of isolation that experience yes. of isolation while you mm-hmm. while that flood is happening um, is it's, just yeah
2: this, this is why i 'm I'm so happy to share my story with you guys because i'm I'm so excited about what you're doing because this is so it's uncharted territory right like People turn to doctors for help to figure this stuff out, but they just don't know. Like, like my team that I have around me is, is so amazing, right? I've got a a GP that's open-minded, listening to my story, offering really great advice. And then listening about the psychedelics, the plant medicine, he's putting it all together. You can see the wheels turning. He's excited about the future. My psychologist, the same way. Um, if i didn't have them from the very beginning i was smart enough that that when i got to that hospital after the military when i was released from that i also raised my hand again said i need doctors i need a team around me and they they helped guide me through this process you know waking back up to what's happening around me because i also kind of furthered further amplified that with plant medicine and psychedelics that really took it to another level and because there's no real framework around this yet, or, or not a, a not a solid framework where people can just find it at their local, you know, hospital or GP. It, it was difficult for me to navigate these experiences, right. And if I didn't have people to talk to, I might have drowned. I don't know, you know,
1: I'm sure many people do. Um, mm. I mean, we're, and you're absolutely right. It's, it was scary for me to realize is even when I was in school as a pharmacist, you, you get this idea in your head that that every medical problem can be solved. And when I went to treatment and saw what I was seeing, like uh, something out of the 50s, I mean, I didn't go to the facility you went to. I, I went to a, <laughs> uh, I, I think, did you go? Well, anyway, it doesn't matter.
2: You could ask um, Okay, which
1: <laughs> I went to Homewood and yeah, I've been there too. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, uh, it was like going back in time. I, it was like diabetes pre insulin. That's right. what I felt it was like as far as the weapons and tools that they had to, to, uh, you know, the, their attempts to alleviate my suffering. It's like a slingshot against a rhinoceros. I mean, they have nothing, nothing like they're, they're, the, the help that I did find over there was through alternative routes from people I met there. That's, and, and that was, I mean, if when you look at the positives of my experience there, that's the positives, yeah. the, the program itself was, it was beyond ineffective.
2: That's, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at with my experience. I went to Bellwood and Homewood, basically very similar um, places. And it, it was the people I met, um, and The healthcare practitioners and doctors that I met that were honest, mm. that filled me with hope again. I met a few doctors that were rock solid, that saved my life, that would not bullshit me. Yeah. Right? They sat me down. They looked me in the eyes. They told me the truth about the Suboxone and Methadone they were about to put me on. They told me the truth about what they thought about addiction and how little we really understood about it and how this was going to be the fight for my life. And Don't be afraid to take educated risks about your life, trying to move it in a better direction. You're a smart dude, Chris, you've made it this far. If you're worried about losing your life, like you, you can think about this, right? And and I saw these people trying to help and I'm so thankful for them because I remember them today. You, you know, they allow me to, to at least see that this rehab facility wasn't a be all end all, even working in it, helming it, right? And I really respect those people where they're like, there needs to be a lot of change. And they fought for change, but on deaf ears most of the time.
1: Yeah. Again, you're fighting a different machine there and one that's churning out considerable amounts of profit. Lots. Um, yeah, I, I feel that with the, uh, you know, I, it would definitely be on one hand that I could count the number of people in there that, that had a positive impact on me, but it was always the ones who were real. They pulled me aside and they're like, look, you're not going crazy. This is, this is, I've been here before. This is how this works and, and showed me things that I needed to see to be able to get me through. Uh, And doctors, again, I had one of those doctors who, um, he didn't do everything, uh, you know, as thoughtfully as maybe the ones you're describing, but at least he was trying, he was trying to be real about the situation and that's all I was asking for. And uh, when you step into those, some of those facilities, I think it, it becomes such a nebulous, just this this weird, nothing makes sense. And you're in a state of vulnerability where you you already don't know what the hell's going on. You know what I mean? So you're susceptible to it. And you see people buying into it left and right. And you're like, huh, what the fuck is going on here? Have I lost my mind? You start to question your own sanity, you know? And uh, so, yeah, those people, a uh, couple of people in particular who who kind of T- took me to the science so like man listen i can see what you're doing here uh this is what's going to happen if you keep doing that so you know you just gotta you gotta play this little game here and and get through and then we can talk about real things you know
2: it's it's the curse of our generation it's like culture and institutions limit are limiting us in so many ways these days from having open conversations because i don't well i don't know why it's it's like for instance, when I went to 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 Bellwood for the first time, there were a lot of veterans there, and the plant medicine conversation was brand new, and it was interesting to see this this butting of heads with the traditional healthcare rehab system treating all of these veterans coming in with PTSD with uh, medical marijuana prescriptions, and they're like, oh, uh, it's, it was scary for them the doctors that really helped me and that I, that I liked were open to having conversations. They're looking at the data. They're asking how these people's experiences are. They're gathering the data. A lot of experiences are good. Some are bad. We're, they're piecing it together. These people are open-minded. And then I saw other doctors just flat out dismissing it. That's garbage. Mm. I heard it makes you anxious. You wondered why you're anxious all the time. And it's like, isn't the better question, what's triggering that anxiety? What's that making you feel in there? Yeah. It thought? Maybe it's a thought like, hey, psst, you need to clean up your diet. You need to exercise more. Hey, Chris, why are you being such a dick all the time? <laughs> that's what happens when I take plant medicine. And yeah, that's I register that as anxiety, but also as a boot in my ass. Mm. And I don't know what to make of that.
0: <laughs> Conscience. Like, I my my experience with that was I would use uh hydromorphone or opiates. I would be wired up, wouldn't be able to sleep. I would use marijuana to sleep. And the, the biggest drawback while I was hooked on opiates was that was the awakening of the conscience uh-huh. and, and, and this, um, you know, catastrophic awareness of my reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, and it, it would help me eventually help me sleep. And I would, I would use it as such, but that was almost, it was like a routine Jesus. of this awareness of conscience and then grappling with, with that. Like I would, I would be in denial all day. I'm, I'm not an, I'm not an addict. I'm not hooked on this stuff. I can stop, et cetera, et cetera. I would come home, need to sleep, have a toke. And then it'd be like, oh my God, w-, like.
1: This is how my day just went. <laughs> how horrible is that? Chris? <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus, Corey. It sounds like uh it sounds like a nightmare, you know, you're, yeah. you're just,
2: what I, what I, it's this polarization that happens, right? Yeah. It's, but, but it's like, from my perspective, it's like, you know, Carl Jung talks about this. There's no coming to conscious awareness without pain. Like for me, just in this podcast like you're a very observant man and I, I think you're highly intelligent and wise and I, I tend to believe it has something to do with that polarization that happened you, yeah. you you pull yourself apart to such a degree that you end up looking at yourself from different angles and somehow that creates this leveling effect mm-hmm. and I see that in people especially the people that are A lesson that I need to learn that I'm still working on is pay attention. Just quiet yourself down and observe, you know? Mm -hmm. And I noticed that in individuals that really start getting this. They've polarized in a certain way where they just observe. They're observers of reality. They watch and they know when to put in insight. You know, it's an observation I have. And it's been backed up a little bit by some wise men through history that said pain does something to people. And don't disregard your pain. People see me as an infantry soldier and say, "Imagine the pain he's been through." I don't think it works like that. I think pain's relative, you know. Yeah, I think it is. I don't think it works like that. I some of the wisest people I know that I sit down and have coffee with. He was a, he was an ex one of these guys is an ex RCP officer that quit and went to become a pilot. Um, you know, I have beautiful conversations with ex healthcare professionals just it shocks me the depth, like terrifying some of their wisdom when you, and their intellect, and you say like, what, what are some of your experiences? And, and they were hell. Some of the same things you're talking about, just trying to hold back the tide of mental health crisis and just looking at it going, what the fuck is going on? And then just processing that all the time and then trying to do your job. That's pain, right? Like when I hear that and try to put myself in those shoes. I'm like, There's a there's more there's a more degree of realness in that than what I saw, because the deaths that I was seeing in Afghanistan were numbers on papers and stuff. Right. Like tallies and statistics. And yeah, I'm seeing shit happen and, and we're getting shot at and attacked. But it's just this awareness that I'm in the center of this war and it's just statistically getting carried away, whereas that's painful. But being holding the shit back is another degree of that. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I don't think, I mean, I like uh, the hotter the fire, the harder the steel was, uh, I don't think there can be any real, uh, any real increase of understanding of this place without some significant struggle or discomfort. Maybe it doesn't have to be full-blown pain, but people who never, uh, you know who constantly hide from pain or don't push their uh, their comfort zones and are seeking pleasure endlessly i'm <laughs> i 'm notorious uh, for my ability to do that um, what happens is it weakens you you go the other direction you just become weaker and weaker and weaker until you can't until little things the slightest stress just breaks you because you you're so It's like your muscles of your body atrophying because you've been in the uh, space station for five years or something. And you come back to earth and gravity hits you. That's, that's kind of the way it it just seems to be this dichotomy. And the fact that we have a choice means that we can choose to struggle. We can choose to swim upstream and pick your battles or life will choose the battle for you. (laughs) And it's coming either way.
2: This is intriguing. It's very intriguing. You know, I'm a big admirer of Carl Jung because I do think I sense some psychedelic use. And I think it's starting to come out now that he used psilocybin when he was writing some of his books in Europe. Um, he's the founder of modern analytical psychology. He has a famous quote in filth. It will be found, (laughs) you know, um, You don't learn anything when you're comfortable and happy. It's only when you're, I don't know, you know, the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He he said that as well. You know, there's, you you see these very famous people approaching concepts without crossing lines. They're very careful with their language. And sometimes I I wonder about that, you know? Um,
1: Well, I think it's hard for us to appreciate the you know our our ability to speak freely in comparison to people from different periods of time i mean if you're in the 1500s and you're running around talking about psychedelics or you know discussing issue anything that seems out of the ordinary you have any uh, new idea like the world is round you know next thing you know they're building a fire and (laughs) it's uh you know, it, it wasn't too long ago that you, the punishment for for speaking in a direction that was not generally accepted would be death. You know, right. so it's it's uh, yeah, people.
2: I'm interested. I hear you. I'm interested to see where this where, you know, plant medicine conversation goes, you know, because plant medicine has been instrumental in helping save me. Um, and i see major institutions universities scientific institutions talking about this it's kind of gathering some steam mm-hmm. i'm just interested to see where this goes psychedelics have been around for a very long time and it's obvious to me when you look throughout history and some of some of the oldest most richest cultures and societies in terms of culture and what they achieved you, you see psychedelics, hints of psychedelics scattered throughout. Mm. And I can't help but notice hints of psychedelics scattered throughout recent history in terms of government interference. Maybe it's just my traumas clouding my lenses of perception. It could be trauma, but it's like, you know, some very smart men discovered the subconscious in the early 1900s, you know, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung worked at that a bit. He called it the collective unconscious, the the unconscious. I'm just an armchair guy here, right? Speaking through this shit. Um, William Bernay, Sigmund Freud's cousin. He had a strange relationship with, with government, big business, those three letter agencies, the CIA, FBI, there were closed door hearings on what they discovered with the subconscious namely that it could be responsible for informing 95% of our thoughts, words, and actions daily. You know, I don't know what that means. I'm not an expert, but what I do know is that it appears that something grew out of that. MKUltra experiments shortly after those briefings on prisoners. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was one of those individuals. I don't personally believe what he did was right. Obviously, he was violent, but when you read some of his work, it's terrifying. It's terrifying what he was talking about.
1: That's an excellent example of what we were discussing before, Chris. With the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. He legitimately thought that he was saving the world, and the guy kind of had a lot of good points. You know, I'd like obviously he he didn't go the right way, and it, it wouldn't have been an effective strategy long term. But if you read his manifesto, you can understand that this was not some full-blown lunatic. This was just a highly intelligent guy who saw the writing on the wall when other people couldn't see it yet and was very, very concerned to the point where he snapped.
2: It's a sad story is what yeah. it is. It's extremely yeah. sad because herein lies the dangers of psychedelics, right? It's like not only do I believe he had the veil pulled from his eyes, but the government did it to him. Like he was involved in experiments, right? And, and he openly talks about feeling PTSD because of that. How dare <laughs> they do this to me? And it's, if you look at what they were trying to do, they were trying to corrupt him and break him emotionally and, and, and manipulate him and move him Consciously in the directions they wanted. That's terrifying when you think about it. And they picked him, they chose him because he was a genius child. If they can crack him. Now, I'm not defending Kaczynski because it's like, what the fuck did he do? But it's like, if you want to move forward with psychedelics, this is a conversation that needs to be had. Because there's a man buried 10 10 10 stories underground in a prison locked up forever you know because of what happened
1: yeah it's it, the the ethical breaches by some of these three-lettered agencies uh i i just you can chalk it up to ignorance for to some degree but to put somebody in that position a child in that position and again the result i mean they should have saw the result coming i <laughs> well, I I guess I'm speaking from my perspective there, but it's just, it is amazing sometimes that what gets done in the name of science or the advancement of understanding. And uh, These
2: are difficult conversations to have. This is one of those lines that I can feel my conscience saying, Chris, be very careful here, right? Mm -hmm. One of those topics. This is one of the most evil men from recent history, like an evil genius you could, call it right and it's mm-hmm. like i don't know what he saw or experienced at the hands of the government but he went away with that which was not good for society not good for anybody not good for him mm-hmm. his family he was turned in by his own brother right like this is a tragedy mm-hmm. and um it doesn't have to go that way
1: no it doesn't you no know? because there's a yeah there, i i really do i like the positive things that i'm seeing with research now where it's not the, you know, it's not a covert operation where they're given a bunch of funds to, you know, do whatever they want to somebody. These are actual legitimate um, studies that are are conducted properly and showing real promise. And I think as we continue to move away from the the kind of way drugs were painted throughout the last century as this everything is bad, nothing is good kind of uh, whatever kind of development that led to the stigma that we now have. Once that continues to fade, and I feel it fading already, I think more opportunities for research will open up and we can start to really harness some of these and put together platforms and formatted design therapies uh, so that you wouldn't have to go through maybe the, you know, you wouldn't have to spend that much time in hell before somebody came to help you, you know?
2: I think that that's the future. I do. I I see it moving in that direction. Like yourself. um, I think there are individuals within society today in positions of influence that get it in strange ways. I mean, who really gets it, but it gets it in terms of maybe these things can help society, but it needs to be done. Right. You know,
1: that that's all I think you can ask because you can't expect somebody to understand psychedelics without the experience. It's not possible. We don't have the language. It can't be, that can't be transferred that way, but it doesn't matter. It's that if you're doing, if you're using something that looks like a potential tool that's showing promise for helping somebody and you're ignoring the, you know, the nonsense, uh, regardless of whether these things have been or or hadn't been legalized you're just looking at it objectively and saying this medicine seems to be helping my patient therefore let's study it right. and it, i see more of that happening and i see less you know people don't bat an eye anymore really and and it's quite different than it was even in the 90s right like i mean so uh
2: my my psychologist like and this kind of ties into what you're saying wasn't sure what she was seeing with me because I was very open and honest with her from the very beginning. I'm very sick. Here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm going to try. I need a desperate solution. So psychedelics, mushrooms, she was very cautious at the beginning, but I had this team around to me that I was checking in with all the time. So they've kind of grown with me through the process and my psychologist is actually going to attend some psychedelic meetings, right? Cuz she's very interested. But I'm open and honest. I try to be because this is, this is bigger than, than me. This is going to help so many people. And I'm trying to help in a way that moves the needle. You know, I jumped into this when I didn't know what was going on. There was no framework. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind, man. <laughs> it blew my mind. It's the last thing I ever expected to see or experience with, with, with some of that stuff. And, and for a guy like me that has ego problems struggled my whole life with 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 identity and ego if you get the feeling that you're the first to the cookie jar or if you get the feeling like this is what I've been looking for I need to go tell everybody I need <laughs> to figure out a way to put this shit into words it's I'm not saying that people shouldn't express what they see and feel creative in a creative fashion but to get lost in that addicted to that mm-hmm. to sucked into a new trap like for me that happened a bit and i'm only seeing that in hindsight after a few years it's okay for me because i'm learning so much about myself would i want somebody else to go through that probably not if somebody had a full-time job would they have survived that probably not
1: yeah i i think i understand what you're talking about there and that i i do see Especially with ayahuasca, for some reason, I see a lot of people overdoing it with ayahuasca. I talked to a girl uh, a little while ago. I said, oh, you know, I'm going to do ayahuasca. It's a good, you know, really good shaman. In the... And I said, like, oh, that's cool. You know, what uh, What kind of experience? And well, this is the eighth time I've done it in two years. And I said, eight times in two years, ayahuasca. Like, hmm. man, I that is a I. I and you know maybe some people can still derive something out of that kind of frequency but i you know judging by what i was seeing with this individual it seemed like there was a lot of emphasis on those experiences and maybe not enough emphasis on what was actually going on with their life now right so yeah. i i think that is one of the dangers is getting sort of trapped in that and it, it, humans make Everything into a little niche market, right? It, they can't help it, yep. and it becomes yep. a culture. It becomes a thing. Now you got to dress a certain way. You're going to, we're going to do ayahuasca, right? And I just uh,
2: this is this is where I'm at with you. It's for my own personal experiences. I was like agnostic atheist prior to all this. I don't particularly know what I am now. Very spiritual. Very. I have faith in myself. Mm-hmm. I guess. Those initial experiences, I don't know how many I've had now over the last five years, maybe, maybe let's say 10 mushroom experiences. The first three or four were very loving and humble, and they brought me in, and it was this warming up, as we said, an opening of the senses. And I was already on that journey, so I was kind of encouraging it. And really beautiful. I started becoming more in tune with the concepts of self-love, loving myself. Ooh, there's more around me than I ever imagined or realized. And it appears to be interacting with me in beautiful ways. Whoa. And then I, of course, because I'm Chris, I continue to push it. I'm a curious little monkey. And the more I pushed it, the more real it got and the more it looked at me Mm -hmm. and the more it was like, what are you doing? And that starts to terrify you. I, I don't know if for me personally, It was that. Shouldn't you be doing the work? Yeah. You come here with this curious mind, and then you leave here and you talk about what you're seeing. But what you're seeing and hearing is telling you to sort yourself out. And you get, it's for a guy like me, that's been beautiful for my development. But if I had, let's say, a shaman around me that's saying, here's what might be happening you can incorporate this with much less turbulence you know i struggled with this for a long time trying to find myself because in a moment in an experience i realized i might not be who i thought i was
1: yeah yeah I, it it does make sense and i i sort of uh, i experienced the same thing with the psychedelics, uh, in that I too, I got to push everything, but i got to push. I got to see, I got to see how far I can go. And I got to a point where it felt very much like I was the last guy at a, like uh, a restaurant and they were trying to close up shop. These things around me were still being polite about it, but they were like, you know, you're spending an awful lot of time here. You've been here a long time, buddy. Maybe it's time to, you know, you know, is there anything else we can get you? Like can we call you a cab and that kind of thing? That that was the vibe, right? And I was like, you know what? I I feel it. Okay. I I've had enough for a long, long time and that was good enough. And uh I've I've heard pretty funny stories. I've never done DMT, but I've heard funny stories about people who um uh overdid it with DMT where they're doing uh I think it was on a podcast. It might have been I, I can't remember what one, but this guy had, he, he was doing DMT every second day or something. And he, he, <laughs> it was preposterous. And the guy got to a point where he he'd launched himself off and he had this kind of path he was doing where he was leaving the earth and he was out there in space somewhere. And more and more often, those uh, DMT elves that everyone talked about, there's a part of that place for some reason, but they actually had a sit down with him. <laughs> that was his final trip and they said look we've been nice Uh, we've been generous with this place and uh, we appreciate you coming here but honestly that is enough you need to like you're exhausting this resource and it's not good for you so we're going to ask you to leave so he literally got (laughs) bounced out of that world by uh, DMT elves which is I thought hilarious but
2: hey listen if we're trying (laughs) to build a consensus of this might be um, i've had similar experiences i'll be honest and, and that's why i think you know you listen to carl young where he says be careful they may be these experiences may be more real than you want them to be mm-hmm. i've had um a dmt experience my one and only experience thus far and and i'll probably do it again but i've got some work to do first right mm-hmm. uh, after those 10 mushrooms mushroom experiences they built to A point where I was like, in my mind, fairly certain about what I think, at least I'm seeing and experiencing and how I can incorporate this in my life and how I might not be doing it as good as I can be. And for me, that meant you have this awareness that psychedelics have given you that you may be connected to everybody in beautiful ways. Why aren't you figuring out how to influence that in more beautiful ways, like building on that? You're an angry guy. You're you're a scary guy. And that's not a bad thing because of your experiences. That's who you you become. But you need to work on bringing that down, letting that child come through again. And I'd get that message and do the work for a week or two and then slowly turn back into Chris. Mm -hmm. And it was more about talking about mushrooms in weird ways than doing the work. And... You know, eventually it was like, well, maybe maybe I'll try DMT. You know, maybe DMT will will take me to that next level, right? And strangely enough, one one of my best friends, smart dude, he's into psychedelics, really kind, loving dude. And I think that has to has to do with going there often, is if you're really balanced and good and humble. And he saw me when I was struggling online and said, Come over, you know. So I went over, and and uh, Terrence McKenna has this funny line. He says, "When you're trying to get somebody to do DMT, all you got to do is ask him. You got five minutes? It's
1: It's the 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 hilarious joke, folks. Is that uh, people can live entire? I've I've met people who have lived entire lives." And I'm talking every day, getting up, going to work, whole family, had kids, the whole experience in that five minutes, because time means nothing in that realm. So it's, it's,
2: it's shocking, but he, he somehow knew that that was what I needed. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's right in a terrifying way. Um, he facilitated the the situation for me and he, 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 he does this a lot. He's good at what he does. And, um, It's the single most profound experience I've ever had in my life. The mushroom experiences are beautiful and some of them have been profound, but this one was just the clarity of it and and the experience, you know, immediately after I, I smoked the DMT and I'm going to try to respect this as much as I can, this speaking about this reality immediately changed to some sort of artificial structure, beautifully artificial but more real than the reality I'm currently in, which was a conundrum. And that lasted very quickly. It was a quick shift into artificialness and then boom, blasted out of my mind. And it felt like a journey through time, through the cosmos. It happened very quickly, but I remember seeing alien worlds, civilizations, planets, ship. Like, I mean, this could all just be some manifestations of the psyche, but you end up in a spot that feels like home feels like the center of the universe. And what I'm staring at is either myself or something else that is in the shape of a human, but energy, pure energy. And it's just looking back at me, laughing at me. It's laughing. And it's saying, (laughs) you bozo, Chris, you know, you think you're so smart and you are quite clever, but you're really stupid at the same time. Really? You know that, right? Like, do you know how sick you are? And that's, that's a hard thing to hear, right? It's like, we love you. And it's not even that the way you're living your life is wrong. It's just that you're angry. And you're resentful. And you're using that in strange ways. And now you're involving us in your fucking shenanigans and this is unacceptable full stop because if you continue this path you'll be removed from the game and that fucking scared the piss out of me i don't know what that means i don't know if that is just in my mind but it literally was like we love you and don't stop moving forward in a beautiful direction doing what you're doing but just realize that that this is a game but it's a serious one hmm. and I don't know if that was all in my imagination or what I came back and my friend was sitting there and I looked at him and he said you're coming out you're coming out it's okay and then he goes you're going back in you're going back in and then it happened again and I, was, I don't know how he knew that but I went back in and the, it appeared again it said Make sure you tell your friend that you love him and give him a hug. <laughs> when I came back out, I just looked at him and I said, can I have a hug? And he just said, yeah, man. Yeah. And I hugged him. And I kind of told him cause he's a, he's good with this stuff. He's trustworthy. He's not going to tell anybody. I'm kind of telling the world right now, but I think it's important. I told him I'm scared, man. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to move forward with this. I love what I'm doing. I love improving my life trying to help people i love talking about psychedelics but this is <laughs> fuck you know like uh, this is more real than i want it to be you know and but isn't this what pe- isn't this what people need if this is real isn't this what society needs something that loves them that's going to help guide us in a better direction i don't know if this nature god gaia the universe i don't label it man but it was real in my life and then you start looking at some of these reports coming out of John Hopkins, the head, psychi- the, the, the head psychiatrist is talking about this shit. He had an experience and he's just like the experience I had afterwards, I questioned whether I even wanted to be part of medicine anymore. Like that's what he said. Right. So it's like, be careful, mm-hmm. be careful. I don't know if I, uh, you know, it's the right time to be talking about stuff like this, right? It's the right time.
1: Yeah, man, that was uh, uh, brilliantly told, and uh, thanks for sharing that, man. That was uh, just incredible, incredible experience.
2: It's terrifyingly beautiful, is what it is.
1: Yeah, you know? yeah. And it. it, it go, go ahead, ahead I was just going to say it, it. It illustrates what you're talking about quite a bit with um, how these things have to be respected. Yeah, absolutely.
2: The concept of humility just Mm -hmm. came in my ear. And I'll tell you, when you look through in history, a lot of these religious documents, scriptures, anywhere you look is really humility, humility. Like, you know, there's discipline yourself, discipline, fasting, like all of these things seem to allow me to interact with whatever this is, the psychedelic better. But the more you do that, the more you realize how serious you need to behave because people around you, it's a weird situation. We're all connected and we need to be on our best behavior so that everyone around us can reach their potentials. That's kind of where what I see. And once you know that, it, it holds you to your potential. And that could be overwhelming.
1: Well, what better purpose could there possibly be for a human being than to do your best to live your best life? And to try your best and hardest to be an example and to help other people do the same thing. I mean, what else is there that that would be a better plan than that?
2: And, and this is where it gets interesting because you want to talk about psychedelics. This is what the psychedelic has kind of revealed to me. It, 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 it Whether you're reflecting with yourself or with the, the medicine, I, I'm not sure. But it's like, hey, Chris. Here's your situation in life. You've just been through all of this. War, drug addiction, just broken relationships, broken relationship with yourself. And you're mending it, you're healing it, you're moving through it with humility. You're trying to learn and change where you can. You're you're trying to get rid of your old belief systems that don't serve you anymore. You're trying to embrace the ones that do. And and it's kind of like, dude, you're in a unique position where you really need to just share your... (laughs) you're fucked up, but so is everybody, right? <laughs> it's like you need to show how you're fucked up and how you're moving through that and trying to get better. And that's kind of why like, I'm open about this stuff is because I'm not perfect, but I have found something that's helping guide me in a better direction. And maybe if this is just an open story, over time, that might become obvious. I'm hoping that if this is real, then over time if it is helping guide me in a better direction, that just laying it bare to the world, it'll be hard to dismiss that.
1: You yeah. know that I think that's does, a good strategy.
2: Does that does that make sense?
1: Yeah. yeah. And I think you are taking that information and you're you're using it responsibly and you're you're making yourself accountable for what you know. That's what what I think that's a a noble uh, strategy, wouldn't you agree, Corey? I would. Yeah, I would.
0: Chris, I was going to ask you about, and you you sort of answered it there a moment ago about how it translated into the practice of self-love and self-compassion. You you were, you were answering it there. And I guess the thing that makes me think about though, is with the lens of trauma is so often accompanied by really, really intense self-criticism and, and self hatred and and yeah. negative thinking, and so with substances that that really do elevate the the conscious mind, mm. how does that? Because the, the elevation of the conscious mind and conscience, mm.
3: um,
0: the consequence of that could be if it was if it was e- either done irresponsibly or um, without sort of maybe mindfulness. You tell me that could take you down a a, quite a dark path. Yeah. So how did that then translate into, into a productive self-loving
2: practice? You're right. Like you could, and this was, I'm so thankful that I just had stability in my life. I didn't have the nine to five to go to. I wouldn't be able to process all this because when I took psychedelics, I didn't realize, yes, they're going to help me. It's beautiful. I needed more mystery in my life, spirituality, but in an instant, my own bullshit was revealed to me in a terrifying way in many different dimensions. Mm. Bullshit. I didn't even know existed blind spots. I didn't even know I had, I was ready and I wanted to see it. I acknowledged that I was broken in so many ways. I just didn't know how many ways I've, I've, I've had friends. I've seen people experience that. And it crushed them. Mm. They saw what they actually are simultaneously saw who they can actually become. And I don't know if that's a real image that you see your future self or your potential, but that polarization can crush you. Like my, my conscience was so hard on me when I first started taking these, like you lost your daughter because you were acting inappropriate. It doesn't matter what happened to you overseas. You lost a relationship. They're both off doing their thing. New marriage, new relationship, and it's blossoming because they're doing the work. You're not, Chris. You got a beautiful fiance. You got to you're moving towards a marriage. And this is great. It's because you started doing the work and showing yourself love. Your life's changing because you're refocusing in on yourself and it's strange because it's like the more i do that the more i listen to my conscience the better my life becomes the more opportunities i see appearing in front of me i don't know if this is just my own weird belief system observation kind of cognitive dissonance reinforcing stuff right but it's um it's an observation that 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 i have and i can't help but notice that it's kind of attached to a lot of these mystical uh, components and branches of third history religious doctrines it's like are we manifesting our realities and and do we, do we do that through our emotions and what we think and how we feel and do we have conscious control over that is there free will over that I, it, these are the things psychedelics start, start to bring to mind and that can start that that transforms your life in unimaginable ways and that can be overwhelming. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it sure can. Sorry. Um, I get wordy. (laughs) No, man. It's great. Um, Jesus, we're at the two, uh, two hour mark here already. Uh, you sliced through our questions
2: because I kind of just ramble and rant. Maybe you can splice it
1: together in weird ways. No, I, I, I won't be taking anything out of this. Um, yeah, you, you went through all the questions and just did an, uh, an excellent job of, uh, of really giving us an inside look at what you went through. And um, yeah, man, I can't thank last, you enough.
2: The last thing I want people to take away from this is I'm some big, strong superhero that has figured this. I'm not, uh, Listen, when I joined the army because I was a, a, a weak, frail little kid that was looking for love and acceptance in a manner that would reinforce my masculinity, right? That's where the army came in. My big heart was looking for validation. I've stumbled through this, my recovery. I've just tried to follow my heart, my conscience, you know, um, and just listen to it. When I got out of the military, my conscience said, you need help. Find a professional, one you can talk to. Okay, I'll do it. You talk to them for a while. Your conscience will say, hey, listen, you're over the the opiates. Let's try like a little bit of plant medicine, but be careful. Discipline. You're an addict, remember? Slow and steady. Mindful. you move through that process okay chris you've handled that well let's try psychedelics let's open up a little bit more oh shit you did you went too far pull back buddy now you need to open up a little bit to your psychologist about how you went too far maybe she's seeing something you're not this constant showing myself self-love by playing this game with myself you know and psychedelics seem to have started that process Mm -hmm. but i don't know Does everybody need that in their life? I know a lot of great people that get it. They've never been around psychedelics. They're just good, humble people that follow their conscience and do the right thing. And Mm. yeah, that's sort of
0: grace. I mean, grace is, is sort of being responsive to the conscience,
2: right? Yeah. It's, it's so surreal because looking back now at my military experiences, there were some commanders that I served under who had grace right? They were spiritual people. And back then I was kind of like, eh, you know, I never uh, was abrupt or, or disrespectful or pointy, but you know, in my own back of my own mind was like, well, that's kind of foolish. You know, they're, they're, they're these leaders in the military and they do quite well and they've got this grace, but how can they believe this? Mm -hmm. And um, I look back and it's just, I look back from a new perspective today. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, a few of these individuals that are very spiritually grounded are watching me from a distance sometimes, you know, and offering up advice. They'll drop a comment in one of my sections. that will be very enlightening to some sort of spiritual document that I'll read and be like, holy cow, this is untying a whole bunch of knots right now. (laughs) And it's like, be careful, assuming you're the smartest person in the room all the time. Right. Because sometimes the quiet ones when they're watching, you know, and they didn't even need psychedelics, right? They didn't yeah. even need It's very interesting. Nobody said reality was going to be easy to understand.
1: You know? And everyone's no. pathway is going to be different.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that
0: grace is always doing it smoothly and, and correctly on the first try, but it's mm. th- that willingness to, to respond and, and course correct or receive the feedback and, and be open,
1: yeah, and admit well, when you're wrong. That's a, you know, the ability the ability to be flexible in your even your belief system when new information comes along.
2: Yeah, that's what I see now. Is they had a framework built around them that they had built since they were very young, and and I see people that get they take the best parts of organized religion, spirituality, and they find that grace, and then they carry it through life. And that's what I was missing. I didn't notice that that's what they were doing, right? They, they were flexible. They were open-minded. They were able to think outside the box. They just had their framework, their faith that really suited and benefited them and allowed them to get through the chaos. And I didn't have that framework when I left the military, right? And, that, and the lack of framework allowed me to corrupt myself in certain ways, like buy into my own bullshit. I'm seeing things in Afghanistan and great. They are tragic, but to think that, that I could speak upon these things in some way that was going to drastically change the military and the government. And you just need to listen to me and psychedelics will be the, it turned into this, to this weird monster a little bit. Uh, if that makes sense. I don't know. I kind of got carried away there, but
1: uh, yeah, well, I I think you uh, spoke to that before where you, um it's hard to kind of find that balance with something that you're passionate about like plant therapy and wanting to do as much good as possible or wanting to enact positive change in the world and and uh you know you, you got to realize the difference between uh things that we have control over and things we don't and and uh pick your battles you know i mean
2: you're right. You mentioned something when we spoke, you know, the other day about free will, you know, and mm-hmm. and sometimes I wonder a lot about free will. It's depending on the way I think about free will, it can really relax me towards some of the stuff that I see happening in my life. And you've probably had happen to you. It's addiction didn't seem like that much of a choice at the time, you know, and 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 plant medicine in a strange way gave me choice back in some strange way more conscious awareness of my reality and better control of my destiny. Uh, you know, that's, yes. that's, why I want to share my story. I see so many people trapped in life with this, like lack of courage to make change. And I found courage yeah. to medicine for some reason, you know, and if it helped me, maybe it'll help others. It only allowed me to find myself. That's <laughs> It comes all the way back around where it was just, whoop, just turned the focus around on me where I realized, shit, this is what needs work, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, whatever you did, Chris, uh, it's uh, quite amazing. I mean, the, the story of, uh, you know, the, the level of hell you must have been at and then climbing out of that hole, my God, the time it took, the pain, the suffering, the, the not knowing, um, the giving up, the countless times you probably gave up. The hopelessness, the hopelessness is, a uh, that word is a, uh, primary driver, something that stays with you throughout the the whole process until one day you think maybe there is a chance. Maybe I can get out of this. And then things start to start to start to change. But man, you have done uh, a lot of, uh, you've put a lot of effort in. And, uh, I mean, I don't know you very well, but Jesus, um, it seems like you're on a, a very interesting path and uh you've got great insight, uh, amazing perspective. And uh can't thank you enough for, for coming in and talking. I think this is gonna be really uh a good a good listen.
2: Yeah. Look, I do this for the same reason y'all do what you do, right? Like once you get once you sit in that pain for a while, it's like it changes you in a certain way. And that, that pain caused by addiction made me realize that number one, if I can get out of this situation, I'll learn something about it and then I can help people because this whole situation that we have on the go worldwide with mental health and addiction problems is like a wildfire and it's out of control and people need to start standing up and telling their stories. Maybe Plato, Socrates. I don't know who said this. I'm going to butcher this. But it was like the reason the world's sick is because people aren't allowed to tell their stories. Yes. And that stuck with me. It, it, it's true for me, right? Yes. And the more healthy I get, the more I, I'm able to tell that story with clarity and truth. And um, I am nothing special. This is not about me. This is about everybody else out there that has done this and hasn't given a voice to it. Cause I know lots of people that have conquered this and maybe they're smarter than me. They just went on their merry way and are enjoying their lives, loving their families <laughs> and plugging in and doing the, doing the work. You know, it's like uh, but I'm, I'm here to just share my story because if I can jolt just one person out of their regular waking day state of consciousness, where they're willing to try something new with respect, responsibility, and courage, and listen to people around them that have walked that path. Maybe we can start saving some people and wake some doctors up, you know?
1: Hmm. Indeed. Well said. I think we will, uh, we'll leave it there for this one. Love it. Yeah. That's uh that was uh really good. Um, I appreciate
2: any- this. Thank you so much for allowing me to do this because um, you know, uh I've I've been asked to be on some other podcasts and they've pulled out because I think they were worried, right? They, uh, there's a fear there. And I, I recognize that people aren't sure what I'm going to say. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sadness couple. It's sad because these conversations need to be had. They do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, this, that's what we've strived to do is, uh, we want authenticity and, uh, we want to, you got to be on the edge. You got to be, you know, in in this, in this world, in this, uh, especially in addiction and, uh, and the state of it, we got to be continually asking questions. We got to get people in doing what you're doing, where you're, you're putting your experiences forward so that other people can glean, you know, if they get two, three, maybe the whole thing resonates with them. doesn't matter. But as long as there's some, some information there that's useful, then then this is good.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah. Chris, I'm grateful for uh, your journey. I'm grateful for the fact that Nathan and I are on this, this journey that we're doing together and that you're willing to, to share, to share your story. And also that you've come to this place of, of self understanding, self-compassion and self-love. And I mean, if we could wish anything upon our listeners, like that would be it, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this
2: is how it's done, right? Like y'all have said some pretty insightful stuff today that have got, has got me thinking and untying some knots. I have all these feelings inside me and I don't understand them sometimes until I hear somebody else talk them through. And then it's like, oh, oh, like a light bulb goes off. It allows me to, to crawl a little bit further towards loving myself a little bit more, understanding who and what I am and what I want out of this life and how do I keep moving forward with that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I,
0: I I go back to the to my Ram Dass quote. You can't rip the skin off the snake. The snake must molt the skin. That's the rate that it happens.
2: So beautiful. Yeah, it's so right. powerful when you think about that for a while. You know. Yeah. yeah.
1: Sweet. Okay, we're gonna leave it there, folks. Thanks for joining us for episode seventeen, and uh, hopefully enjoy it. We'll see you next time. Thanks. See you Thanks. soon. Dad.